We are in Mark chapter 7 today. I would invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. Mark 7 verse 14 is where we will start. You would have no way of knowing this because you're all facing this direction, but for those of us up here, the monitor that we rely on during the service is not working this morning. And so our worship team had to had to make do without that, and now I have to make do without seeing what's on the screen behind me. So if Cassie chooses to put up pictures from when I was in junior high school or something like that, I'll have no way of knowing. Other than that, I'm sure you'll start laughing tremendously. The other downside for you is that I have no clock to go by. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Ed Schlurka throws something at me if... Um, I go too long. All right, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23 is where we're at. Um, let's look at this. This is really a continuation of what we began to look at with the teaching of Jesus at the beginning of Mark 7 last week. And remember, this is abnormal for Mark to spend this much ink on the words of Christ. As I talked with you about last week, mostly what Mark does is he captures the actions of Jesus, what Jesus did. He leaves it to Matthew and Luke and John to catch more of the lengthy teaching discourses of Christ. But here we have some teaching recorded for us. Let's read this together. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples, asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. I believe Mark means that phrase, evil thoughts, to be an umbrella category, and now he gives what that means. Jesus here speaks of what those evil thoughts would be, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. So what is happening here? Let's, let's look at this. Jesus now addresses the accusation that the Pharisees and the scribes made against him back in the beginning of the chapter. If you remember, last Sunday we talked about the first 13 verses in Mark chapter 7. And back in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribe make an accusation against Christ. Look back at verse 5 with me. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And we talked at length about this. The accusation that the Pharisees and the scribes coming up from the city of Jerusalem, having traveled at 90 miles, either on horseback or foot, coming up, they're looking for an opportunity to observe Jesus. They find it. They're looking for an opportunity to create an accusation against him because they want to discredit his ministry and they want to be done with him. And so they find it, and they make this statement against him in verse 5. Why do your disciples, he being their teacher, if you remember, has the obligation to model in their thinking the tradition of the elders, 
before them, and he has the obligation to teach it to them and to make sure that they're following it. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Mark 7, 5. And last week we saw that his response to them directly was to go on offense, that when he responds to this accusation in that moment with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, he goes on offense. He doesn't even answer the question that they're asking. He attacks their tradition, he attacks the tradition of the elders, and he attacks them. But now he gets the attention of the crowd as we come into verse 14. He gets the attention of the whole crowd, and he takes this teachable moment that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have given to him. And what does he tell them? Look at verse 15. Christ says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So here Jesus is addressing the question, what makes you unclean? makes you sinful? What makes you impure or unrighteous? All different ways we could say that. Can food do that? No, Christ says. Can eating with dirty hands do that? No, Jesus says. The Pharisees and the scribes have it wrong. Their tradition is teaching the wrong thing to the people. Christ is saying, God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. Not really. <laughs> loose, loose paraphrase. Person is not defiled by what he eats is what Jesus is saying. Even if his hands are not properly washed. What makes you unclean? What makes you impure? What makes you unrighteous? What makes you sinful? Jesus told the crowd that day the issue is not what comes into us. The issue, Christ says, is what goes out from us. Are you with me today, church? The issue is what comes from us. Now, I have no idea how many people that day in the crowd thought about the implications of what Christ was saying. I don't know how many of those crowd members picked up on the significance of this teaching that Christ was giving to them, the significance of this statement. Jesus had just attacked the entire rabbinical system of ritual purification. That's a mouthful for us. It was a really big deal for them. And Jesus just attacked it. He attacked all of the regulations concerning food and cleansing. He went head-to-head not only with the tradition of the elders which would continue to be the way the Jews understood the Old Testament, well, till now, present day. He not only went after that, but he also attacked the dietary laws recorded in the Old Testament. What do we do with that? I mean, did Jesus argue against Scripture? Well, we'll look at that in just a minute. But for now, let's stay with the story. Jesus drops this bomb on the crowd. Look at the text. He makes the statement to him. There's nothing outside of a person that going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. All right, see you later. You know... 
I know. I mean, some of Christ's biggest, most powerful sermons were like a sentence long. And I know what you're thinking. If only if Baptist pastors could get a hold of that idea. <laughs> Who's laughing down there? So Jesus drops this bomb on them and leaves. He, he says to these people who have always been so careful to follow all of the dietary laws given to them by God, you're focused on the wrong things. This is what he's saying to the crowd. It doesn't make any difference what you eat, Christ is saying to them. Go make yourself a nice BLT for lunch. Okay, I'm ad-libbing a little bit there. Think about what's in a BLT and it'll make sense. Jesus and his disciples then leave the crowd and enter a house. Notice that in the text. And we, we believe that he's at home in Capernaum now, the city that he lives in. This is where, as we've been talking through Mark, we know Jesus took up residence. He had moved from Nazareth before his public ministry began. He's now living in Capernaum, has been for some time. So he goes into a house that might be his own house. This is also where Peter and Andrew are from. James and John are from there, so it could have been one of their homes. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that he leaves the crowd and tries to disappear for a while. The 12 disciples are with him. And once they're alone, they come at him. <laughs> Notice the text. Uh, Jesus, what were you talking about out there? What was that all about? I mean, it sure seems like you're saying it's not important to follow the dietary laws. Now, we know that can't be it. This might have, must have been one of those parables we don't understand. Because it sounded like what you were saying was we don't have to follow the Old Testament law. Well, this is one of those times, and, and as we know, there are many others, where Jesus appears to be surprised at how much the guys don't understand. You see his statement to that effect in the text. So he tries to make it more clear to them. And he, and he says to them, food cannot make you unclean. It can't make you impure, unrighteous, and sinful because it never comes into contact with your what? Your heart. When you eat, food doesn't come into contact with your heart is what Christ says. Now more on the heart in a moment. Because this is really the point of the passage, but we need to get there. With, with this teaching, though, not only was Jesus saying that no food causes spiritual impurity, not only was he saying that a little dirt on your hands, guys, isn't going to make you sinful, not only is he saying that following the tradition of the elders by washing your hands is powerless to remove the sin that's in you, He's saying that the tradition of the elders, look, it's been given to you as if somehow it makes you righteous, as if somehow it makes you pure and more godly. But guys, you have to understand, just sprinkling a little bit of water in your hands, it does nothing. It does nothing about the sin that's in your life. He's not only saying all of those things, but he's also taking on the entire rabbinical system right now. He's taking on their rules concerning food and cleansing and ritual purification. 
He is indeed elevating himself over the tradition of the elders. And, and he's also elevating himself, listen to me, church, he's elevating himself over the Mosaic law. The dietary codes that were recorded in Scripture. See, if any man were to do this, there's a word for it. Heresy. If any man were to do this, to elevate his own teaching over the teaching of Scripture, we would call that person a heretic. We would call them a false teacher, amen? But here we're not talking about a mere man, are we? Because this is the God who instituted these things. And if he put them in place, then he certainly has the authority to modify them, amen? And so he has authority over them. His authority over these food laws stems both from his identity, and this is really important as we move here in a bit into some New Testament passages, but his authority over these food laws stems from both his identity and the mission that he is in the process of accomplishing. This is what's going to make this all make sense. Don't miss here that Mark states clearly that with this statement, look at it, it's right in the text. With this statement, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Well, we have to take a commercial break right now. <laughs> and I need to talk to you about the dietary laws a bit more for us to really feel the weight of this. I want to make sure you have this in your mind. Why did God give Israel the dietary laws, and why don't we need to follow them today as Christ followers? Because you probably know there are some faith traditions that believe you do. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that we are still bound to the Old Testament law, and we are still to follow the dietary codes. Why do we and why do the majority, vast majority, of Christ's followers today not believe that the dietary laws are binding. I think this is important for us to have clear in our minds so that our consciences can be free here. Well, first of all, I want to say I believe that all, and, and you know this, but I believe that all 66 books of the Bible are the God-breathed, authoritative, inerrant word of the living God. Amen. Well, the dietary laws are in the Bible. Is that a contradiction? Leviticus chapter 11, if you want to look for them, is one place you can go. And don't we believe that Leviticus is an inspired book of the Bible? Absolutely we do. So what gives here? One Bible scholar explained why these dietary laws were given to Israel for a time and why we no longer need to follow them. Cassie's ahead of me. That's good. Their purpose, it's on the screen for you, was to instill an awareness of God's holiness and of the reality of sin as a barrier to fellowship with God. But once defilement of the heart is thoroughly removed and full relationship with God becomes a reality through the atoning death of Jesus, the ceremonial laws have fulfilled their purpose. Important word, fulfilled have fulfilled their purpose and are no longer required. Let me say it to you this way. 
Here in Mark chapter 7, Jesus was not arguing against Scripture. Jesus was fulfilling Scripture. His identity, his authority, and his mission that is going to culminate on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead is the fulfillment of all of this. We'll see this. I'll take you to some passages that clearly show this in a moment. He makes this crystal clear during the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records. We have to go to Matthew's gospel here for a second. Matthew 5.17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's making the same point there in Matthew that he's making in Mark. And then the author of Hebrews writes about the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, the old covenant between God and Israel through the redemptive work of Jesus. And this is kind of a lengthy passage, but hang with us because it says it so well. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Don't miss this, church. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, look at what the author of Hebrews says. He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Church, glory to God. Through the sacrifice of the cross, Jesus established a new covenant between God and man. And aren't you thankful he did? Jesus is inaugurating here through his ministry, a ministry that again will end in the cross and his resurrection. He's inaugurating a new age. The gospel is new wine. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said this. This is back to Mark chapter 2, verse 22. We've already covered this ground, but let me remind you of it. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What would change with this new covenant? The law is no longer going to be written on tablets of stone, for one thing, but on the hearts of the people, of the citizens of the kingdom of God. In this passage in Hebrews that we just read, the author is quoting the prophet Jeremiah. 
And, and this is a prophecy that was given hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The author of Hebrews quotes this verbatim. You see, church, now the king had come. And the kingdom citizens would be filled, empowered. They'll be led by the Holy Spirit. Jehovah had said this through Isaiah, Isaiah 44.3. Isaiah, by the way, just a little, uh, little uh, fun fact here. Isaiah is Mark's favorite Old Testament prophet to quote. He quotes Isaiah more often than any other Old Testament prophet. But here, Jehovah says through Isaiah, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Jehovah said through Ezekiel in Ezekiel eleven nineteen. these are all passages that contribute to this idea. And I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This was the promise of what would happen through the work of Christ on the cross, through our salvation that's ours because of the new covenant between God and man. And he spoke through Joel, and he said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. This is the passage, of course, that Peter quotes in the book of Acts. So coming back to Mark 7 to finish the passage. Jesus taught his disciples what does make someone unclean, what does make someone impure, unrighteous. What is it that actually makes someone sinful or defiles them? He tells them what matters is what comes from you, what comes out of your heart. Look at verses 20 through 23 in Mark 7. Christ here says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of a man, male, female, men and women, what comes from within, out of their hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And then he says, all These evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Christ is saying it's not the food you eat, guys. Don't be so dim-witted. It's not your food. It's not that your hands aren't ritually pure. The evil that's in you comes from your heart, comes from the heart, which is the core of the person biblically. It's the source of someone's spirituality. It's the source of someone's morality. It's the source of someone's will. And it determines your action. It determines your inaction. It's from the heart that we commit sins, and it's from the heart that we sins of omission. I don't know how to say that. We commit sins because we don't do the good that we should do. All of these things flow from the heart, Christ is saying. And what is the condition of the human heart? Jeremiah spoke of it. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God had told Israel through Hosea that he had no desire 
These passages, I'll tell you, they should sober us as those who gather for corporate worship. Because God told Isaiah through Israel through Hosea that he had no desire for their sacrifices if their hearts were far from him. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire steadfast love, Jehovah says, and, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The message of Israel is perhaps even more clearly seen in Amos chapter 5, where Jehovah says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But then listen to what God says to them. But let justice roll down. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I see no reason for us to not understand this as Christ followers as being important for us today. For us to realize that if all we're doing, church, is we're gathering in this room one time a week on a Sunday morning, and we just come in and we just go through the motions and we're not even thinking about the songs we're singing. We're just like, okay, I got to check this off my list for this week. I got to get this done because this is what I do. I grew up in this church. My parents grew up in this church. My grandparents grew up in this church. And, and I have to come in here and I have to check this off the list. I got to go through the motions and I got to do my religious thing. And then I go back out and I live my life however I want. And God's saying, stop it. Stop singing. It's like noise to me. You're, you're giving me your rituals, but you've yet to give me your heart. God wants our hearts. Israel's failure to obey God renders their sacrifices meaningless in these passages. God didn't want to hear their worship music if their hearts were far from him. So church, as we close this morning and we move towards application, let us understand and embrace these truths. Let me summarize them for you. It's that next slide, Cassie. We can just go to that next one. Look at the screen. This is really a summary of what we've talked about this morning. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. He made the old covenant obsolete. This is why we don't need to follow the dietary codes anymore. When you had, some of you probably had ham for Thanksgiving. That was okay. No guilt in the room. We don't need to follow those dietary laws in Leviticus anymore. Jesus established a new covenant between God and man. It's a covenant of grace and mercy. It's not the old covenant, but it's a covenant of forgiveness. Praise God. Jesus inaugurated new age. And the followers of Jesus will be filled, empowered, and led by the Holy Spirit. And don't miss that last one. What matters is the condition of the heart. Not rituals. And, and we can still fall into this today. Don't think this is just back then. Just because we don't practice our rituals the same way they practiced their rituals, don't think we cannot fall into relying on rituals and ritualism. What matters, what matters, this is what's always mattered to God. 
Those passages I read to you were from the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, this is, what's ma- this is what mattered to God. What mattered to God was the heart of the person. He wanted their heart. It's the condition of the heart. Fellowship. God wants our hearts. Can I tell you something? And I've heard this my whole life. And I don't know why, but it always... Forgive me, those of you who, like me, are more chronologically mature. (laughs) But it always feels like it flows from the older to the younger. So let me pick on us older folks for a minute. When we are hyper-concerned about the behaviors of young people, I mean, I've grown up my whole life hearing people saying things like, oh, he's smoking. Smoke cigarettes. I don't get that at all. Or, oh, he drinks. Or she drinks. We're hyper-concerned about the outflow of the heart. Now think about this in the context of what we're talking about. Can I just be honest with you? If Jesus had not transformed me, I am quite certain I would be a drunk. (laughs) Without a doubt. Because there's nothing else to live for. Life is completely meaningless without Christ. He is the only answer, church. And so if I didn't have Christ at the center of who I was, I'd be grasping at anything anything that could give pleasure, anything that could give some kind of satisfaction in this life, if I believed that when I breathed my last one day, it was all over, it was just done, are you kidding me? I would be a horrible, evil person getting as much for myself as I possibly could without Jesus. You too? Because if you know that you would be, then you understand the gospel. And so when we make the outflow of the heart the focus, oh, he drinks, oh, he smokes, oh, they're living together. Now listen, you've heard me preach enough about sexual ethics. You know that what I believe is that God has a plan for your sexuality, that it's one man, one woman in the context of a marriage relationship for life. Amen? You know that's what I believe. So please don't misunderstand this and send me emails this week. But when we make someone's sexuality the focus, and whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, I don't care. But we focus on those things, and we're not focused on the heart of the person. God wants their heart. But some of you aren't believing me yet. Listen to me. God wants the heart of the person. And when he has that, things will start changing, church. But it starts with the heart. It starts with the heart. This is what has always been the case. Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. God has never changed on this. He wants the heart of the individual. Jesus is saying here in this passage, it's not external things that matter. Here it's food and drink. All these rituals. 
But what matters is the heart because the heart determines the thoughts. The heart determines the actions. Dr. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, in short, a man is defined by what he holds in his heart. If the heart is evil, there will be evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, and all the other sins that Jesus lists here. Eating or refraining from certain foods will not change that list one iota, nor will washing one's hands. It is the heart that must be cleansed. So again, how should we apply this today? There are several good points of application from this passage, but let me just ask you one question this morning. How do you know the condition of your heart? How do you know the condition of your heart? Jesus said clearly here in Mark 7, it's from what flows out of it. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. They make someone sinful. They make someone impure. They make someone unrighteous. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 14, 17 and said this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's Paul doing? He's flipping that and saying, giving you the positive equivalent of it. Jesus is saying, look, you can know your heart is impure. You can know the condition of your heart if evil is what's flowing out of it. Paul's saying, Guess what? You can know that your heart is pure. You can know that your heart is being transformed by the gospel if what? Good is flowing out of it. Righteousness, peace, joy. I know the condition of my heart, church, from what comes out of my heart. So where does that begin? I want to remind you of that verse in Ezekiel that we read a bit ago. Let's go back to that. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will. This is something God does for us, church. We are the recipients of this. Listen to this sentence. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Glory be to God. It's his grace. It's his mercy in our lives. Ezekiel is going to go on several chapters later and see a vision where there's a valley of dry bones, completely dry, in piles. And God is going to say to Ezekiel, can these bones ever live again? And Ezekiel will say, you're God, you tell me. And God says, you bet they're going to live. And he breathes into them, and that pile of dry bones becomes people once again. And that, friends, is a picture of our salvation. Because Once upon a time, every single one of us in this room, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you used to be a pile of bones, dead in your sins, and God looked at you and he breathed life into you and enabled you to believe. Praise God. Glory be to God. Worship team, can you come and let's sing in response. And as we're coming, I just want to ask you, This question, church, if you would bow your heads just for a moment and close your eyes. Can I ask you this question, each one of you individually, because this is a question that you have to answer for yourself. Do you know Jesus? Are you trusting in him to save you? 
Can I encourage you today, if you're honest with yourself and you've never made that decision to put your hope and your trust in Christ for your salvation, right now, right now in the quietness of your heart, you don't need to walk this aisle. You are always welcome to. If that helps, you're always welcome to come to the front. But right now in the quietness of your heart, let me encourage you to reach out to, in faith to Christ. Right now, if you don't know Jesus and you want to know him today, it's because, I believe, it's because the Holy Spirit is stirring that in you. Respond in faith. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. Thank you for the great salvation that I can have because of your sacrifice. And I trust in you right now, Lord, for my salvation. I believe in you and I give you my life, Lord. I'm asking you to be my Savior and I'm asking you to be my Lord. Believe in him, friend, and he will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It is a promise in Scripture. He will give you a new heart. But I also want to talk just for a moment with those of us who are a little farther down this road. You're a little farther down the path with Christ. And you have trusted in him to save you. Can I ask you this? Are you trusting in Christ to change you? You've trusted in him to save you, but have you trusted in Christ to transform you? Are you abiding with him today? Are you walking with Christ? Are you believing in him? Do we believe that the same beautiful gospel message that led to our salvation indeed has the power to lead to our transformation? Church, it does. The same gospel that saves us transforms us. It, it creates a new heart within us. And it helps us to walk with him. It changes how we think. It changes how we live. Our priorities are no longer the same. Our actions are different because of Christ. Do you believe that the gospel has the power to transform you today? Church, can we make the commitment to lean into Christ together as a body? as a group of believers, that for whatever time, whatever time God has you here at fellowship, if that's a year, if that's five years, if that's 10 years, 20 years, can we make the commitment that we're going to lean into Christ together? We're going to let him change our hearts and transform us so that we would be the people that he's created us to be. That we would do the good together that he planned for us to do together as a church before creation. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. I'll, I'll close with this. Dallas Willard was a UCLA philosophy professor, and he was also a prolific Christian author. And this is what he wrote. He said, Our aim is not first to act differently, but to become different in our inner being. We're not just learning how to be nicer versions of our old selves. We're dealing radically with the fundamental wrongness of human life left to itself and introducing the kingdom of righteousness that is Christ into the depths of our heart. It is the inner life that counts. That is where profound transformation must occur.